1: Welcome back to the Hindu Studies channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran. You can find out about my work at rajbalkharan.com academia. But more importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Professor John Stratton-Hawley, who goes by Jack, who is Professor of Religion at Barnard College. Hello, Jack, and welcome to the program. Hi. We are speaking about a really exciting new publication called Bhakti and Power. Debating India's Religion of the Heart. Um, Jack is one of the three editors on the work. Maybe we could start by telling us how how this came about. How did this volume come about?
0: Well, this is a story that takes us to the... So I'm a New Yorker. It takes us to the country village of New Haven, Connecticut, where there is a university called Yale. At the university called Yale, they have lots of money and they're constantly scratching their heads at Yale to think what they would do with their money. One of these scratches led to a conversation between the South Asia Center at Yale and Swapna Sharma, who is one of our editors. And they said to Swapna, why don't you have a conference? And she said, what shall I have a conference on? And they said, well, why not Bhakti? And she said, all right, why not Bhakti? That's how it all began.
1: I have to say, as a, as a lover and a, and a scholar of stories, um, I feel like I'm listening to a Purana right now.
0: <laughs> ah, the word means old, and that is certainly true. Uh, this is a very old.
1: old perhaps old is code. oldest code for timeless. Anyhow. Ah, there we go. <laughs> um,
0: That's how so it all started, and it turned to a really, this was, let's think, this would have been maybe the fall of 2015. Swapna so gave me a call. We are, uh, you know, okay, this is the Purana motif. Swapna and I are connected at, at the hip, sort of, or in some part of the one's physiognomy.
1: There's a sambandha. There we say. go.
0: We are sambandit in a certain way. We are both, so to speak, um, Vrindavan bhaktas. We both uh, are associated with the Great Pilgrimage Center, Vrindavan, not far from Delhi, in North India. She, having grown up there, been born there, and I, having been... Uh, somehow attracted there in midlife, where I met her brother-in-law, Srivats Goswami, who was one of the great figures of Gandhava. So her idea was that Srivats should certainly be a part of this conference. Uh, He's fabulous with jet lag. You can just wake him up and he can speak any place in the world. This is a talent we don't all have. So that seemed good. But she wondered, how shall we construct the rest of the conference? And so I was sort of thought for a moment and 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 said, well, why don't we take the most obvious question in the field? It's the one that people always ask, whether in a classroom or to themselves before they go to bed at night or something like that. What does religion have to do with power? If if we really are involved in the religious life, why is it that the world never seems to change in consequence of that? And so forth. And that led to a conference that ultimately would be about the question of bhakti. We lost that in a moment. In relation to power,
1: which brings us to the title of the book, which is not a misnomer, apparently, Bhakti and Power. What, there's there's um, there's so many contributions, and there's there's so much that can be said about about um, the volume. Could you tell us a little bit about Bhakti and Power in terms of a main theme or a main takeaway or an overarching rubric for the work?
0: Well, I don't know whether everyone that's listening would know but what the word bhakti uh, refers to. So, that is
1: a wonderful place to start. Thank so you. let
0: me kick this one back to you, Raj. What would you say if you were asked that question? How would you gloss the word bhakti? Major, major world, word in Hindu worlds.
1: Well, if I glance at your subtitle, it's India's religion of the heart. I see. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 we've had so many conversations on this on this podcast oh, okay. where, we, where we talk to... Uh, uh, no, it's a good question, where we talk to scholars in terms of um, the hairs that we split and the insight that we seek. And then at the same time, there is sort of a um, a way in which we teach religion or teach Hinduism that's relatively canned. And the way in which we introduce bhakti might be devotionalism having to do with um, a personal relationship to the divine. But Anything we teach in an introductory religion class, probably especially in Hinduism, it's really liable to critique or or in need of embellishment. And so one of the things you say, I think at the very outset, if I'm not mistaken, you're in the introduction or one of you say, because there are three of you collectively speaking, <laughs> in that introduction.
0: We should bring oh, somebody else on stage. <laughs> Christian, Nowetsky, Christian Nowetsky is
1: the is the other <laughs> editor involved here. Okay, Indeed. now back to you. Um, <laughs> actually, no, I believe it may have been the three of you citing something that you specifically said in a different work, which is why I tagged it in my brain as you. and And ah. what you say is that, you know, sure, we can introduce it as sort of a, a personal, uh, emotional, devotional relationship to divinity, but bhakti is also extraordinarily uh, a public affair, right. or can very much have a dimension that's communal and that's really beyond any institutional or even personal definition. And so, as soon as we define it, much like Hinduism, much like religion, we're in trouble. And so maybe you can say a little bit about the ways in which this work um, enriches our understanding of this term.
0: Okay, so good. Um, yes, indeed. And this has been a very powerful, Christ- uh, sorry, contribution. I would say that Christian Novetsky has made to the field. He's wanted to push back against the kinds of associations that we English speakers from North America are apt to form when we hear the word devotion as a term of translation. We tend to think of piety, we tend to think of the private realm, the way in which, legally speaking, religion has always been defined uh, on this side of the ocean. And uh, that just isn't appropriate to many, many bhakti settings. We get a sense of that from the fact that the word bhakti itself is in a different version of itself, bhajan, that's to say, singing. Well, you can sing a song to yourself, and it's very important to sing songs to yourself. Sometimes some of us can't get songs out of our heads. But the act of singing is a communal act. And, uh, and so Bhakti takes us into that realm. That's one thing I'd say. And then another would be that um, it's the whole puzzle of what the relationship actually is between the realm of affect, in this case, music, and the realm that we call religion. And you sort of signified that realm by using the term the divine. Hindus famously don't take the same point of view as, let us say, Christians are apt to do when we think about those terms. So in both regards, both what we might mean by the divine and what we might mean by the associations between music and the senses, or specifically music, uh, let me say Hindus are ahead of at least many of the presuppositions with which I grew up as a kid you know, born into the General Electric Company somewhere in these United States. What we try to do in this book, if I can just go on for a minute, is to, rather than, as you were saying, to accept the the canned or very general senses of the terms that we've just been talking about, is to try to make it possible for readers to um, situate themselves in a bunch of specific settings that would give them, particularly students in a classroom or teachers in a classroom, in just a few pages, an idea about the kinds of settings where this term bhakti might be encountered and what it might mean and what it might then have to do with power relationships.
1: Well, the part of the power of this book is, is the access, the direct access to so many examples. Um, to so many examples of what we're calling bhakti. Now, is there a specific range historically or geographically in this work that you're dealing with?
0: No, it's pretty big. Uh, it's all confined to India, which might not necessarily be the case if you're thinking of Hinduism diasporically, with one exception, and that's the very last chapter in which Richard Davis talks about what it's like to teach bhakti in an American classroom. Um, so the rest range very widely. The earliest contribution takes us back to the 7th century, the 6th or 7th century in South India, and many of the contributions uh, are much more recent right up until the present day.
1: The, the way in which the book ends, uh, for me, it strikes me as a, as a fantastic sort of almost self-reflexive framing device in that um, in many ways, this, this volume would have made uh, an excellent contribution to, to his course and the way in which he may wish to teach bhakti in, in, in the States or, or North America broadly.
0: Oh, that is so cool. I never thought of Richard actually using this book in his class. Why not? <laughs>
1: well, it's, for, for me, I mean, I'm biased in that I, you know, in reading epics and Puranas, you're, you're constantly confronted with frame narratives, and, and my impulse is to decode why certain books are framed certain ways. Okay. Now I feel that the, 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 those narratives are much more consciously crafted than perhaps the ways in which um, essays in a, in a collective volume uh, start or end. Certainly the starting and the ending don't need to relate, but it was really interesting. It was very self-reflective, I think, in terms of, hey, well, now this is, this is a resource with which we can teach and understand and share um, bhakti. So... In the introduction, you, um, what's, the best, what's the best way to approach this? There there, there's so much data in this book, and there's so much we can say about it. Um, nevertheless, there are three overarching buckets or currents or thrusts that you, you, into which you group these studies. Do you want to tell us about that?
0: Sure. This actually was Christian's idea. The whole you know the first thing was that we had this conference at Yale which turned out to be just great. And people really stuck to their subjects. They really tried to address the one central question. So Christian and I, rather to our surprise, found that we really were thinking about, could this be a volume? And then he suggested that we might have three rubrics that we could use, buckets, as you said. You're thinking the Tripitaka, the uh, the Buddhist rubric, the three baskets that you could have things in. He thought of three rubrics that he thought would be good to use. So they are as follows. One is called Situations. And then the second is called Mediation. And then the third is called Solidarity. In the situation, and by the way, the essays themselves, the chapters themselves sometimes might have been in a different section of the book, it's just the nature of the beast, but I think they fit pretty well here. In the situation section, we try to give readers, uh, I really am thinking of people sitting in a classroom a way to connect with one or another situation where you might ask the question, what's the relationship between religion and power, between bhakti and power? So that's the first set. And then the second set is called mediations. There the idea is that there's something in the term bhakti that has even etymologically to do with sharing. That's what. That's how the word bhakti or bhajana, those related words come into the kind of um, Sanskrit reading that you're often doing, Raj, as you well know. So, what is there something? If it's true that Bhakti is a mediator, well, in what ways is it? And then the third group is a group of uh, essays that um, that takes a rather different point of view. It tries; it's called Solidarities, and it tries to take a look at situations where you could think of Bhakti as actually being instantiated or made alive or institutionalized in a way that you have the emergence of certain kinds of social-slash-political-slash-religious solidarities. We often think of, of bhakti as something that works against our relationships, against caste, against the traditional constructions of gender. There's something about bhakti that protests against the way the world is. But are there not also situations in which bhakti is either co-opted or transforms the world so that a certain template of social relationships is established? Anyway, so those are the three rubrics that we decided we'd try to use.
1: Well, that was a crucial point that you you touched on at the end there in terms of this fundamental question of whether or not bhakti um, subverts power structures or whether or not that's too superficial um, vantage point. Uh, there are a couple of interlocutors, I believe, that are discussed in the introduction that are fascinating. Maybe you can share with us your own view about that and or views expressed in the work. Um, and it may be great if you touch on uh, the Ambedkar example you use.
0: Yeah, I wonder what's your think. So there's a very famous moment, famous moment in the history of Indian religion and in the history of Indian Commonwealth, 1956, when uh, uh, Numeral uh seceded, so to speak, from Hinduism. And he was, you know, toward Buddhism. This is after rather a long um, period in which uh, he had been uh, he had different kinds of relationships with the, the bhakti traditions of his native Maharashtra on the Western side of uh, the Indian subcontinent. But it was a very dramatic moment where he said, he just decided to leave it all behind, and it had specifically to do with a particular temple for Chokamela. Chokamela being uh, one of the Dalit participants in the broader Bhakti narrative of Maharashtra. But that raised the question: you know, in what way actually was Chokamela a part of that narrative? If that narrative had not served to transform Maharashtrian society over so many years. Why would Ambedkar want to be a part of it? Here's the man who is the leading voice in drafting the Indian Constitution, which is declared cast to be unconstitutional. Why would Ambedkar any longer want to have a relationship with this tradition? He struggled with it for many years. Actually, we know that that um, on one occasion he was asked to say some words of welcome or, uh, or inauguration, actually to another group. and he did so in kind terms, you could see that this was a narrative in Maharashtra as elsewhere in India that combined various caste and gender positions, but ultimately he threw up his hands and said, it never gets us out of the caste box. Back to you, Raj, I don't know where we're going here.
1: No, with the example, the the point you raised after sharing the three um, baskets into which yeah. these studies are placed was, I think, this crucial point of whether or not bhakti has the power to level power structures, or whether or not it seems that you indicate um, you use Ambedkar as an example in the introduction of a counterpoint to that idea that he right. gives up. Um, so yeah, so it turns to Buddhism because bhakti cannot properly level the playing field uh, for for
0: uh, right. Not, it's not that it couldn't conceptually do so, but uh, but it hasn't done so in practice. In fact, the great sociologist, Emin mean when he ended his life, uh, the last just about the last lecture he gave was a sort of meditation on this on this point, in which he said that unless you actually change the power structures in some different ways, whatever. Religion might share, might have to say against them is not going to have the kind of effect that you may hope it can do. Probably many people who are listening to this who who know Hindu studies and know Hinduism will be thinking of the Vedasaivas in the 12th century. There are some historical questions to be asked about how we know what we know about the 12th century in the Kannada speaking regions. And I think one of the credits of this book at least to me, is that it doesn't push those questions under the rug. We hope that we make uh, a historical moment visible to readers in a way that actually um, is inflected in, in, in ways that, that make it accurate rather than magic. But back to the original point. We started with Mbedka. Another place we could have started is with the great Ekera Manajan, a wonderful translator, theorist, uh, student of folklore, who in his famous, famous book, Speaking of Shiva, published by Penguin in 1973, begins with this poem that is the best known of uh, the entire uh, Shiva corpus. And I can just quote him for a moment. He says, the rich will make temples for Shiva. What shall I, a poor man, do? My legs are pillars, the body the shrine, the head a cupola of gold. Listen, O Lord of the meeting rivers, things standing shall fall, but the moving shall ever stay. So, in this poem attributed to Basavana, Basavana, 12th century figure, you have a rejection, it seems, of temple religion, of the religion of the rich. Uh, in favor of the kind of religion that sounds very much like the personal religiosity that we were just saying bhakti is somehow not a part of or is more than. But this is probably the poem which for most readers, this book became justly the touchstone for bhakti studies for decades in the English speaking world. If we look at this poem and then look at it in its broader context, who really were the Vida then we have to ask some questions about the kinds of conclusions that Brahmallajan himself and his readers certainly have wanted to draw if we think of this poem as providing the main orientation for what Bhakti is really about. So we have an essay in this book by Gil Ben-Hehruz where he's taking a look at not this 12th century figure, not the poet figure, but a thirteenth century text, which is the first text, the it's called the Ragaligalu, of the poet Hadihara, which gives biographies of saints just like Basaba, who we've described. So if we expect them to be casting aside all sorts of norms like temple worship and so forth, it turns out we don't find them doing that there. So what are we to make then of the Vidashaiva situation? And that's the kind of thing that we're trying to open up here to enable readers to move into, in this case, that narrative setting and see what they would make about the kind of claims that emerge in poetry and in singing, and then what it actually uh, seems to resonate with in the very accounts that these same groups of people provide about the saints whom they revere.
1: Thank you for touching specifically on one of the studies. Uh, It was uh, Gil Ben-Hirut's. Want to maybe talk about each of the studies or touch on them in any particular order? Well, I don't know. You
0: know, that's a long <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's a long list.
0: Like the mob out of this book has eighteen chapters. I think <laughs> that's that's a lot. Um, Indeed. And by the way, people is it eighteen? Let me see. Seventeen. Seventeen. I take it back, I take it back. Only seventeen. But they're short and people were very good about really restricting what they're gonna say to a short period of time sure, let me just give a little bit of a list. Um, we open with a chapter by Karen Pekillis, which is about the, the great Tamil female uh, poet, Saint uh, Karek al who uh, fashioned her life in the image of Shiva dancing in the cremation ground. So what does it mean for a woman to take on that persona as her sort of life persona? The second chapter is Gill's about how we, we look inside the the stories that are given by the Viyacepvas themselves who we meet there? And Gill's essay is really quite remarkable in trying to look at the the uh, sort of three touchstones that you might think of protests, as usually understood in a Bukti, um voice, protests about gender relationships, caste relationships and then specifically about uh, temple worship and institutional religion. third chapter is kind of like that from Heidi Powell at the University of Washington, but she's looking especially at Haridam who's a 16th century figure, and in the north of India. But these same issues emerge, and with the same kind of, you could say, qualifications about the ideals as seemingly enacted in this poet's own world. A fourth situation is from uh, Evan Graves, who's an, a, a musicologist, actually, and uh, this would be the power of bhakti as music. He takes us to Calcutta Kolkata, in uh, 2012 and shows how a group of musicians found themselves left out of a set of new regulations having to do with um, support from the state and uh, tried to Use bhakti, you could say, as a sort of uh, battering rod to make sure that music, musicians themselves were included in the deal. And then, chapter five here brings us up to the absolute present day. This is Jolie's fabulous work on uh, it's called All the Vamikis Are One. So, it's a study of, of the sanitation workers of present day Lucknow in relation to, and here's the key point, an effort on the part of the Arya Samaj in the 1930s to make for a kind of majoritarian bhakti and to fit all kinds of people like these sanitation workers under the heading of bhakti. The question that Joel asked is, how did that happen? Is bhakti actually as majoritarian as it seems? And what are the sanitation workers themselves feel about having been incorporated in this bhakti corpus? The answer is that they don't feel all that great about it at all and he shows how actually the the figure of Valmiki whom we think of as the author of the Ramayana actually turns out to be two and in fact three Valmikis. So you know there's a lot of sort of particular stuff that comes up here but maybe you can get some sense of how it is that each of these five chapters while there are echoes between them, they try to situate bhakti in real life settings that are quite different from one another.
1: Definitely, definitely. You do get a sense of the, why, you, why these are in the situations basket. Um, Let
0: me just stick with Joel, if I may, for a, a moment. You know, this whole question sure. of what, what bhakti means on the stage of modern Indian politics. It, it, we're not just talking theoretical issues here. Uh, there has, with the with the rise of the BJP in uh, in India, there's been Bhakti has really become a very crucial point of contention in the conduct of, uh, of religion in relation to social power in India. With some people on the side of the BJP accusing Congress sympathizers are being, as they say, secularists, secularists, but with a kind of you know, sick take on it, while Congress leaning people are apt to point with some disdain to the bhakti aspects of the BJP. Joel's essay on how, how bhakti became majoritarian religion in India is very much pertinent from a historical point of view to exactly these questions. And it raises many of the questions that we see on the powers in UP Many Many of the questions that get reported in things like you know, the, the Globe of Toronto and the Times of New York and the Post of Washington on a weekly basis. What is happening to less well-represented groups in a state where the prime, where the chief minister uh, is deeply involved with what one might call about the institution.
1: Well, this, this study bespeaks really, I think, a lot of the, uh, I want to say maybe impact, um, of this, of this volume in that Bhakti is arguably the greatest engine of what we call Hinduism today. And so in understanding, um, in understanding these various studies, it's necessarily going to color and enrich, uh, your view of Where we are now politically or sociologically, in terms of you know the face of the religion today, Um, what? So shall we talk a bit about the second basket?
0: Sure. Um,
1: Meditations.
0: Mediations. I like meditations better. Actually, (laughs) (laughs) I
1: I need some Uh, coffee. It's it's the afternoon here. (laughs)
0: Me too. Uh, Actually, that's what we're both going to be running to that as soon as we're done. It's not going to be too long. So The middle part of the volume is called Mediations. What kind of mediations? It opens with an essay by Christian Novetsky, in which he uh, features the issue of vernacularization, as it's called. It's called a polit- political theology of bhakti, and he looks at that 11th century, 12th century moment where bhakti came on stage of vaharash in religion. There's actually a lot there. So we're we're gradually coming toward the present in that way. We've had the earlier, um, we've had we've had Tamil Nadu several centuries before. We've had Karnataka again a century or two, or at the same time this now. We have Maharashtra. Uh, John Court has a wonderful essay called "Which um, Called Bhakti as Elite Cultural Practice." So where's the mediation there? First of all, note, of, note the fact that he's claiming it as elite, quite by contrast to say, what Ramanujan has taught us to believe. But there's a mediation between James, which is his special interest and others living in North India in the 17th and 18th century. Then we have this great essay by Manpreet Kaur called Lover and Yogi in Punjabi Sufi Poetry, And a last dear, Listener, you can't actually see what the cover of the volume looks like, but we have this fabulous woman. Raj, so you're an ordinary street observer, and probably looking at this uh, volume right now, who is this on the cover?
1: It is a woman of mystery, to be sure. Ah, <laughs> a mysterious, which, intriguing, yes. intriguing uh, let's say even earthy, sensual figure.
0: Ah, what, is she, what are the colors involved? What
1: does she look the, like? the colors are, are quite rich. Now, I've been up since 4 a.m., but I oh. an orangeish, reddish orange uh, top she's wearing. There's some sort of jewelry or, or, or uh, mall around her neck that matches uh, her ornate necklaces, uh, uh, earrings. She has this, this uh, purple veil, and she's got this, this beautiful fan. A, really a mysterious vision of a going on there
0: in the world would have decided to put such a figure on a book called Bucky and Power? We've just been talking about the you know, ugly realities that sometimes uh, underlie the Bucky realm. What did you need to have this person on the cover? What do you think when you saw her there?
1: Well, I thought uh, firstly, that is distinct and intriguing and I want to find out more about that image. And ah. secondly, secondly, I thought, wow, they've got someone great uh, at marketing on their team. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, University of Washington Press, they really have been good. When I showed this to someone uh, in our group here in the office, she, she's African-American. She looked at this person. She said, wow, what's that she's holding? You identified it very confidently as a fan. Absolutely right. But from Ty's perspective, she wondered if that wasn't maybe some kind of axe or some kind of uh, you know, knife-like thing. That this woman, she's looking at bhakti power, that this woman is sort of taking to society as a whole. The answer is that it's not. But I love the fact that she had this association. So the reason that this person is here, this person is actually named Hir. So that's a a Punjabi name. And she's in love with a guy called Ganja. And it's a great Punjabi narrative about love that uh, has a lot of religion behind it. Many echoes to the love story between Krishna and the gopis or specifically Gata. And the image is actually made by a Pakistani artist. So talk about mediations in in the essay that Manpreet gives us which is focused on the 17th, the 18th century, I'm sorry. She shows how bhakti as a narrative bridges between Sufis and yogis and Krishna bhaktas, and because the Sufis are there between Muslims and Hindus and in fact between Pakistan and India. So if there's a hope that's behind this woman carrying the fan or is it an axe, it's that there's something about a bhakti perspective that ultimately might actually undo the, uh, the terrible sword-like divisions that have been size across the Indian
1: whole. Well, firstly, the, the duality of the fan and axe bespeaks, the title, Bhakti and Power, it's, yeah. that's, beautiful. that's quite beautiful. Um, secondly, for those of you who have not um, had a chance as of yet to gaze upon the cover of this book, um, I will post this exquisite image as the thumbnail for this interview. So, so the, the thumbnail for the interview is what we're referring to right now.
0: Okay, great. So we're in the middle of mediations, and we were just talking about how several mediations are involved in the story of Hyer and Ranta. Uh, we go on from there to Phyllis Granoff, who works with a particular uh, Assamese manuscript from the British Library, actually, which is called Illuminating the Formless. So this is an essay about conceptions of God as formless and conceptions of God where God takes form. It also has politics involved. Then there's David Haberman's beautiful essay called Bhakti as Relationship, which is focused on the worship of stones, or particularly the mountain and the stones of Mount Govardhan. And he shows how even stones are personalized by their worshipers. And then we have the benighted essay of who, which is called Bhakti the Mediator, in which I try to show how there are, I think I counted, 15 ways in which Bhakti serves this mediating function. And that gets us to the end of the second part of
1: the book. And of course, the, the, uh, the notable essay there is called Bhakti, the Mediator. Uh, by, In case you guys didn't catch that, it's a contribution by the editor with whom I'm speaking and other than Jack Holly. Uh, <laughs> and the, the final category is uh, Solidarity. Yeah,
0: so let's go to that. Um, It opens with an essay by uh, Kyo Okita, who uh, teaches in Tokyo, but was trained at Oxford and is also a Brindavan Basi, as I am, called Singing in Protest. So it has to do with Hindu-Muslim encounters in the biography of Chaitanya, this great 15th, 16th century um, saint, and you could say rabble rouser, who transformed the face of religion in much of North India. And there's a, a companion chapter by Srivats Goswami, whom we've just talked about, who is one of the great figures in the Chaitanya lineage in Vrindavan, this great Krishna pilgrimage site. And it's called Bhakti and Power from the Inside, a devotees reading of what Chaitanya achieved. And Srivats says lots of things in that essay, but he's particularly interested in how the very figure of Chaitanya as a public figure emerged under the, not the frown, but the smile of the Mughal state. So you have Muslims and Hindus, we're going to use those terms, involved in the actual creation of a tax-free environment. It literally was that. The Khan of Vrindavan was was formed as a tax-free entity in the year 1598, where bhakti could flourish. And it reminds us of the fact that we have... uh, devotees of Krishna who are also Muslims as part of the Mughal state. I'm thinking of the high figure Rahim whose poetry isn't represented here, but one might wish it were. Then we have, okay, so this is a sort of happy picture of how Bhakti creates its own solidarity. How the the Chaitanya movement created a framework for popular religion that could be welcoming to all. Then we have a chapter by Dibhyacharian who now teaches at Princeton, that is its sort of answer to that. Divya looks at how after the King of Marwar in Western Rajasthan became a Krishna Bhakta, devotee of the Balabhsampradaya, sort of parallel group to the Chaitanya group, how a whole series of new regulations came to be enacted that um, that created a, b- a bhakti solidarity that excluded people who had not been formally excluded, these included, for example, shoemakers, mochis, in quotes low-born people who had had certain rights to temple worship in mewa, various parts of Mewar, and now find themselves excluded by people who wanted to make it a Hindu state. Tyler Williams uh, also has an essay on Rajasthan, but it focuses on. A group of um bhakti uh sampradayas as such, that's to say, real religious communities, in their economic relationships. And then we have this very unusual chapter, chapter 15, by uh Aditi Kini and Vijay or William Finch, which is about Vidyapati, the great 15th century saint. But Vidyapati remembered not as a singer and as a poet, but as a minister of state, who had to do with creating a whole network of rivers and ponds in the state of Mewar, that somehow, if one thinks about his other spiritual involvements, that somehow were meant to, um, enact a, um, is the word that comes to mind, a favorable, a well organized, a, a fruitful and well watered landscape where this kind of relationship to the divine could flourish. So uh, I don't know, one only can think about the challenges we all face because of the ecological crisis that we're in, but oh man, if anywhere there is a crisis, it's in India. So. It's actually I think, not an accident that the book, in terms of its solidarity chapters, ends there. And then we go to the chapter we've talked about where the classroom becomes its own solidarity. And we have Richard Davis reflecting on what it's been like to teach about all these years.
1: Oh, that's been actually quite an accessible and succinct um, survey of the almost 18 18- <laughs> Chapters of the book, the 18th there is a bibliography. Bibliography. No, we'll keep it sure. auspicious. Uh, everyone who's reading this book, you author okay, your, your right. author your own 18th chapter, which is a response to the book. Very
0: good. You can keep uh, this book at home without danger, <laughs> unlike the Mahabharata.
1: Uh, nerdy Hindu studies jokes. I love it. Um, all right. uh, so maybe just a couple, a couple broad remarks, and then I know we've, we've taken a fair bit of your time, and you. Yeah. We've got tons to do, but you, is it? I mean, editing, this must have been quite uh, textured and and probably insightful process. Were there, you've obviously been doing this for quite some time and have a lot to say about Bhakti as as a researcher and as a teacher. And were there, um, were there ways in which this work really enriched or colored or impacted or changed your view in some way?
0: Let me report something that's, uh, that's in the title itself. The working title for this book was The Power of Bhakti. And then Joel Lee, you remember, Joel is the author of the chapter having to do with the sanitation workers of Lucknow. Joel Lee said, I really don't think you should do that. Uh, there undoubtedly are chapters of this book that have to do with the power of Bhakti, but let's try to be more honest about the power of power and make for parody in the title. To me, that had a very fundamental effect. And by the way, Joel's book will be forthcoming, sort of large book. Let me just stop and say, what I hope is the case is that readers sitting in a classroom or maybe at home or wherever will be able, as in the case of Joel Lee, to see in just a few pages, no, eight pages to get a, a vision of what his scholarship is about. Our contributors were just fantastic in policing themselves so that they would offer those little visions of their view of things. So that's a plug for the contributors. As to how the process of the book has changed me, I think it would be something like having to deal with what's in Joel's criticism or what's in Divya's article about the institutionalization of bhakti in 18th century Marois, um because of... What shall I say? Um, I'm an American citizen. You're a Canadian citizen, Raj. Good for you. So many of us are wondering why we're not Canadian citizens these years. But if we, but if we all became Canadian citizens, you know, you would be able to hold the country up anymore. We're in a, a terrible time when it comes to watching the radical recalibration of religion in relation to the state. It's just unimaginable to me and to many Americans what we've seen happen since the 2016 uh, elections. I don't know, the, just the problem of religion and power. The The fact that these two go together in such complicated ways, unpredictable ways. I don't know that I can turn that into an advertisement for the book except to say that I would hope that it gives some kind of broad perspective of places and places in time where these kinds of dislocations and then relocations have been faced before. I would love to think that it's a resource getting
1: through bad times. Well, it's a fascinating perspective. And, and of course, you touched on something that's very pressing in our times. Um, just one very short uh, final question before we close. Uh, why don't you tell us what are you working on now? Oh, God. <laughs> or, you, or maybe not. No, <laughs> no, know? no.
0: Okay. There, there are probably five or six of them. I'll restrict myself.
1: What aren't you working on now? No.
0: No. Okay, there
1: we go. <laughs> you mean...
0: What a guilt trip! Did you hear that, everybody? What have you What have you sidelined, Jack? The book that's uh, coming out next for me is a is a book called Krishna's Playground, and it's we've been talking about Vrindavan through the course of this. It's about living in Vrindavan today. So here is this ideal landscape, the childhood place of Krishna, place of his um, of his loves, of being by the beautiful Yamuna River in North India. Uh, Utterly airbrushed. If you were to Google it right now on on uh, if you Google it right now, I suspect you'd find a sort of ISKCON view of the beautiful Ganges. But if you go there today, what do you find? You find that the water of the Yamuna is undrinkable. It's so polluted, in fact, that many people don't bathe there anymore. Most do not. Uh, efforts to create a, uh, an enduring structure for the town have so far failed and it's it's enduring a major real estate boom so the face of the town is just is is changing at a rate that i find just unimaginable so this is a book about that it's called christmas playground um brindavan in the 21st century and it'll be out in the middle of the fall in india first from oup from oxford and should make it here in uh November, plenty of pictures. What I'm hoping is that, my personal hope, is that this could be just some small, small tiny contribution to uh, helping us somehow wake up to what's going on in the world around us and the fact that we just can't continue as we've been going just in terms of population to start with and expect this poor globe to support us. I would love it if if Vrindavan could become a World Heritage Site. I know it's not an answer to every ill, but in this particular instance, what might it do? It might actually save that beautiful space across the Yamuna, which is the implicit contrast to the beautiful temples built in Vrindavan. Save that for the future rather than watch it also become a parking lot along with everything else on this planet. So that's the book that's been on my plate. Late.
1: That sounds like uh, an important work, um, both in terms of scholarship and um, important in a way that scholarly books um, rarely are. Important in terms of um, beyond the academy, raising awareness, um, activism. It's it's understandable. It seems why you are so um, enchanted with India's religion of the heart. It seems that. Uh, Your projects, or at least the one you describe, are very much heartfelt. So it's been a great pleasure speaking with Jack, uh, the editor of this book, one of the three editors of this book, Bhakti and Power, Dr. John Stratton-Hawley, who is professor of religion at Arnard College. Thank you very much for speaking with us today.
0: It's been great to talk with you, Raj. Thank you so much.
1: And all of you out there, until next time, keep reading. Take care. Bye-bye.